Game of Thrones cast. Game of Thrones cast. Game of Thrones cast. Game of Thrones cast. Season five. Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> It's the happiest day of the year for me. It just is. Guys, this is my Game of Thrones Season 5 podcast. First of all, I could have sung the traditional Game of Thrones theme at the beginning, but I feel like I've seen like a lot of like web videos and animated videos doing that lately. Like peop, you know, and and not to mention we did that uh, during the Josh Figures It Out. Game of Thrones segments last year when Jeremy and I sung Josh Figures It Out to the the tune of the Game of Thrones main theme. The main theme is awesome, of course, but I think it's starting to get slightly played out, so I'm going to try my best to sing a different piece of the fantastic Game of Thrones... I'm going to try my best to sing a different piece of the fantastic Game of Thrones score by Ramin Jawadi every week to start off these recaps. So that right there, that was the, uh, the status slash Dragonstone slash Melisandre slash Relore, the Lord of Light theme. It's four notes. It's quite simple. Very effective, though. I love that piece of score. Not quite my number one. I decided lately my number one is I really love the... Uh, I, I, I think of it like the John Egrete love theme, but they also, I think, play it sometimes just when, uh, like when you're seeing The Wall... It's like very like lyrical and melancholy and a little bit Morricone-esque and really gorgeous. That I, I might break that one out for episode two. Anyways, what is this? What is this show? So I'm releasing it under the Josh Figures It Out banner because I don't feel like setting up a whole separate website and feed for it. And this is going to be an extremely sloppy cast. No great production values or special segments or any of the other stuff I've done except the mystery other things. I got a lot of other projects and stuff in the fire right now it's not even like except the mystery is over plus i'm doing some other podcast production that's so cool i can't even talk about it yet but game of thrones is my favorite show on tv bar none and after i watch episodes sometimes i just really feel like talking about them and i loved doing the game of thrones season four recaps so these are going to be probably pretty short and pretty loose I'm not even I'm planning on taking like serious notes or anything. It's just going to be your boy Josh's uncut thoughts on every single Game of Thrones season five episode. Simple. That's it. Plenty of places to get Game of Thrones commentary. Obviously, of course, you can read all sorts of recaps online at AV Club and HitFix and Vulture. You can listen to dedicated Game of Thrones podcasts. Not to mention the one done by uh, my good friends over at AfterBuzz TV. They're going to do their own Game of Thrones podcast. I didn't get to be on. Sad face. But plenty of others that are also just like independent shows dedicated to Game of Thrones. It's a phenomenon, guys. There is no shortage of places to talk about Game of Thrones. Why am I doing it? Because I love it. Because I don't care if this is an original idea in this case. I just want to be one of the voices talking about Thrones with y'all. And I think a few of you guys liked my Game of Thrones recaps last year. I feel like perhaps I'm a valuable voice in this discussion. My bona fides up front, look, I was one of those people, I'm not like a Song of Ice and Fire reader from way back in the 80s, 
like most of you, I assume, or many of you at least, I watched season one of Game of Thrones live on HBO, was blown away, went back, read all the Song of Ice and Fire books, sped through those babies, became a super fan, started, re- started recording my own GOT-themed like rap songs, because which you could probably dig up at somewhere somewhere on the internet. Um, I'm not going to tell you where. Not even that it's bad, because I thought it was I thought it was pretty good what it came up with. It's just so embarrassingly nerdcore. Jesus, but that but that that's how heavy my passion was for the show at that point, and it has remained. At one point, it was one of my favorite shows on TV, but then Breaking Bad ended, and now it's just simply my favorite show on TV, and it's simply a unique accomplishment among TV shows. There's never been a TV show in history on this scale with this sort of production values telling this epic of a story. It doesn't even matter if it nails the ending at this point. Just the sheer craft of the production and the thought that went into the world building of Westeros pretty much ensures its place in the pop culture canon for decades to come. It's an accomplishment on par with the Lucas Star Wars universe and you saw how many stories came out of that, even the ones Lucas wasn't really involved with, all the non-canon novels, just based off of three movies that didn't even have that much plot in them, and weren't even, like, incredibly well-written, just iconic and fun and campy and great, a- and great action and adventure. So if that big of a universe could be spun out of something like the Star Wars movies, then just think about the depth and subtlety and nuance of the Westeros that... I was going to say George R.R. R. Martin, but really unfair to say at this point, Martin and Benioff and Weiss have created with this show, which I think of at this point as the canonical version of Westeros, especially getting into season five. The books were prelude. The books were a blueprint. This is the thing. This is the text. This show is the true, I think, work of art. How many adaptations can you say that about? How many adaptations not only do justice to the source material, but are worthy of surpassing the source material in terms of being the canonical version. You can't, I don't think you can, I can say that about anything else except Game of Thrones. But that is the level of the accomplishment of this TV show in this recapper's opinion. At the beginning of my season four Game of Thrones recaps, which you can go back and listen to on the Josh Figures It Out feed, I claimed that we were probably at the at that moment, at the moment of the Game of Thrones season four premiere, hitting peak Game of Thrones in our culture. We were right between the Red Wedding and the Purple Wedding. A lot of exciting stuff had just gone down, and a lot of exciting stuff was about to go down, and people were throbbing at the mouth for the second half of the Storm of Swords adaptation. It was coming off its third season, which is, at this moment, probably the strongest. Though not by a lot. Shocking level of consistency in this show. Season 4 was the weakest, but even then, not by a lot. Season 4, full of amazing, enjoyable stuff. But at, just as we were coming off Season 3, excitement had never been higher. The show had never been more popular. And I think now that we're coming to Season 5, after Season 4, there's a little bit of backlash. People starting to say, oh, the show's a little bit too big. It's starting to drag a little bit too much. It's starting to get unwieldy. Season 4, I think, considered by some a minor disappointment. The ending, which Benioff and Weiss had said, uh, was probably perhaps the greatest episode of the series. Episode 410, The Children. Struck many as a little bit overstuffed. And I would kind of agree. I think they put so many of 
the plot that season's plots big action moments in a single episode that maybe they lost their impact seeing them all one after the other boom 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 and episode nine uh the watchers on the wall possibly the weakest episode of the series so far though even then having now watched the episode four or five times of course um there's so much detail in that battle scene man in the production of it Every time I watch it, I see some new stunt or some new piece of set design that just really rub, really cements this incredible world they've created. This just a, just in a single castle, the layout of the castle is so clear, and the wall is just as big as intimidating as you'd picture from the books. And all the big moments from the books are there, and and a couple big moments that were not in the books played perfectly during the battle. It was only the weakest episode because it focused on one of the show's weakest storylines outside of Bran and excluded all the other very exciting stuff going on in the show. But it did a lot of justice to uh, the Jon Snow storyline, I think, in season four. Really wrapped it up nicely. Gave Jon and Ygritte a very nice final moment. Gave Sam some very nice character development. Kit Harington really starting to come into his own in the role. He's not a bad actor, guys. He's just playing a boring character, but he's playing a boring character pretty well. He's grown on to be quite a bit. So have we hit peak Game of Thrones? I think at this moment, perhaps there's slightly less hype for the show than there was a year ago, but people still seem pretty damn excited about it. We are coming to the trickiest moment in the show's history. The moment where the plot of the TV series is about to start outpacing the plot of the books. Because yes, we have two more books in the Song of Ice and Fire series to go, A Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons. But these are certainly not Martin's most plot-heavy books. There's a lot of character setting. There's a lot of table setting. There's a lot of establishing things and then a little bit of movement and then a little bit of movement. And once again, uh, the world, George Martin's world building is his greatest skill, and I think a lot of it is done very expertly but it can still be a lot to take in on the page. You could read, like, all of the Feast for Crows and think, man, I, I learned a whole lot more about Westeros, but not a whole lot happened, did it? Outside of a few big moments, which I do think are going to be ported over into Season 5. By the way, have you guys read A World of Ice and Fire? The, uh, the Westeros compendium that Martin co-wrote? Talk about world-building, man. That thing is dense. But if you want to get the entire history of the Targaryen lineage, like, every single Targaryen king over a centuries-long period. Or if you want to get, like, the millennia-long history of families like the Lannisters and the Starks, or if you want to know what the hell's going on in Ashai or Yi-Ti or the Shadowlands or some of these other far-off places you've heard about, it's pretty much required reading. Really interesting stuff. Can't wait to see how they're going to use some of those details in the show if they ever come up. And if they don't ever come up, it's just, uh, it really grounds this world. It's so well thought out. But anyways, there's not a whole lot of plot in books four and five, and the little bit of plot that there is, we've already started to run through a lot of it. For instance, we've run through Bran's entire storyline to date at this point. To the, in fact, there's not going to be any Bran or Hodor or Mira or Children of the Forest in episode five, I believe. I'm sure you guys are all really crying about that one. I'm not, I'm not especially sad about it, I'll admit. But... But a lot of the other st- we've done a lot of the other stuff too. We've really blown through a lo- even a lot of books four and five's fairly meager plot. But here's the real kicker. 
it almost doesn't matter because Benioff and Weiss have finally got the confidence and decided, okay, look, this is our beast now. We are taking the reins, Martin. Martin is not even writing an episode this, se- this season. He's focusing full on on the winds of winter. But by the time season six of Game of Thrones rolls around, it might be like doing a totally different plot than whatever's going on in Winds of Winter. We just had to accept. There are two different competing gospels of this chapter in the history of Westeros at this point. Martin's telling one, Benioff and Weiss are telling another. And so we're just going to get this gospel, this version of the story. Characters who were never supposed to meet end up meeting. Characters who were never supposed to die end up dying. They're charting their own path. And I couldn't be more excited. I think that's exactly what this series needs. Finally, taking this world, going through the most important plot developments, introducing all the important characters, and now we've got this immaculately constructed sandbox and creators who know this world better than anyone on the planet save Martin. And now they can start telling the stories they want to tell. And they can go nuts. And I'm so excited. I haven't been this excited since back when I was recording Game of Thrones raps three years ago. I think this could really be the moment this show like skyrockets into greatest of all time contention status. I'm, I can't even tell you guys. I really feel like given three more seasons, this team that has created such amazing television so far that has such a sure hand in their storytelling, they're going to be able to bring it all home. I really believe that. It's so hard to end a series, and God knows it's going to be hard to end a series like Game of Thrones, but I feel like they're going to be able to wrap this thing up in a satisfying package for just about every character. I can't wait to see what happens. And it's going to start happening now, as of this episode, which I have yet to talk about yet. I just had to do a little bit of setup to say why I'm so excited and why I'm like, God, I need to do this show. So look, let's start getting into it. Let's get into... Episode 501, The Wars to Come, written by Benioff and Weiss, directed by Michael Slovis of Breaking Bad fame, among other things. Game of Thrones season premieres are always a bit of a warm-up. Always a little bit of like, all right, let's get that engine running again, and it starts out a little bit creaky before it really gets going. It's good. Once you've been away from Westeros for a while, you feel I think you need to be kind of reintroduced a little bit gently at first. You don't want to jump right straight back into the action. Most of the stuff we saw in this episode was fairly true to the books, with a couple very interesting deviations, but mostly just kind of um, putting the storylines in motion that these guys have in mind for this season. We start with this great thematic piece, a first for Game of Thrones, a flashback. And of course you got to love this setup here. At first, I was like, why didn't they do make it a pre-credit sequence? It totally could have been a pre-credit sequence. But you would have lost that cut from young Cersei's face to old Cersei. That was just so, sho- so shocking. This is not a show that still does flashbacks. It's never done a flashback before. So now that you've had four years to set that precedent, starting season five with a flashback, at first it was like, who are these two girls? What is going on? Even having read the books, even knowing ahead of time that there was a flashback in this season, probably going to be in the very first episode, I was still caught off guard. I was like, who are these two little girls? And then the blonde girl started really bad-mouthing that witch. And I was like, man, this girl's kind of a nice ice cold. And I was like, kind of like Cersei. Oh, wait a second. Right. 
the fact that they call so little attention to it being a flashback plays perfectly. Because I think for a lot of people, even until the moment where the very end of the flashback, her friend says, Cersei, let's go, you don't know it's a flashback, and then immediately after she says that, we cut to Cersei's face in the present. It's a bad omen. Look. We ended last season with the death of Tywin Lannister. Now, Cersei's in power. It's what she's always wanted, right? The very first thing she asks this witch is, will I be queen? It's what she's wanted her whole damn life. And now she's got it. She's got power. She's got more power than anyone in the Seven Kingdoms. Finally. And she is not happy. Her father's died. Her murderous brother's still on the loose. She doesn't even know how to handle it. Lena Headey's face is just this stone mask this entire episode. She's bottling it up. That, that fear of getting what you want and not knowing what to do. And immediately thinking, like Jamie openly voices... Now there are people who are going to try and come and take it away. Like, everyone is going to try and come and take it away. This episode is called The Wars to Come. Because truly, things have calmed down. There's not a lot that's necessarily going to drive the action now. But in things like an Iron Throne seated by a child without Tywin Lannister to guard it, people are just going to see opportunity. Marjorie's going to see opportunity. After Marjorie interrupts Loras's tr- tryst, uh, Loras is just all like, I don't, need to, I don't need to keep my business quiet. Tywin Lannister's dead. It's you who's got to worry. You who's now stuck in the Red Keep with Cersei Lannister. Marjorie's like, perhaps. Perhaps. Looking to the side. Not happy. She's thinking something. She's got something on her mind. And she's just the most obvious opportunist for the throne right now. Well, I mean... Except for Daenerys Targaryen, who is openly amassing an army to try to eventually take down the Seven Kingdoms, and everybody knows it's coming. Some people are oblivious to that fact. Some people are just kind of choosing to put their heads in the sand. You know, like, I know, I know Cersei knows Daenerys has ambitions. I think she's got bigger fish to fry, perhaps, right now. I think she's choosing to ignore it. One person who is choosing not to ignore that fact is Varys. Varys, who knows that Tywin Lannister is dead, he's got Tyrion Lannister, which he has decided to spirit away because Tyrion has talent and promise and a powerful last name, which as you hear Littlefinger say later in the episode, sometimes that's all you need. It's a powerful last name. So Varys has got Tyrion and the knowledge that Tywin is dead and another horse he knows he can back. Since even before this series started, he has been angling with... Pentoshi Masters and whoever else he could get his hands on to try to bring about a Targaryen restoration. And I think for a while he just kept hearing, yep, Daenerys is getting stronger and stronger. Eventually she'll find her way over here. Now I think he's going to try to hit the gas on that by heading to Marine with Tyrion Lannister in tow. I love this development. I, I've known it's coming since, you know, seeing the preview that HBO released a uh, couple months ago. But so smart, guys. We're, I'm assuming this means we're basically losing all the business with John Connington. Oh yeah, I'll, by the way, everything I'm going to say on this entire recap series, blanket spoiler alert for the books. I'm not a person who cares about spoilers. Unless it comes to the leaked episodes, God, HBO has to be so pissed that those episodes got leaked. 
But I will not discuss those episodes before their air dates, believe you me. I will not even watch them before their air dates. But as far as book spoilers go, book spoilers are plenty throughout this thing. Just accept it. So we're going to lose that whole business of John Connington and the new Targaryen kid and God and hopefully whatever the hell is going on with Penny, you know, the other dwarf they introduced to give Tyrion like a quasi-love interest that he's clearly not into and all the where do whores go business. I'm sure at one point we'll get Tyrion saying, where do whores go? You know, some sort of meditation on it. But God, I hope it's limited to like a single scene. Instead of going through all that Tyrion slog stuff, it seems like we're basically... Now that Varys is involved, he's going to fast-track this thing and get Tyrion to marine post-haste, and I couldn't be happier. Because that's all I want to see, is Tyrion and Daenerys working together. Of course, entirely appropriately, Tyrion doesn't give a shit about working with Daenerys. Tyrion's not even sure why he was saved. As far as Tyrion's concerned, he's no longer a lord, can't really be a Lannister, can't even be in Westeros anymore. His life is basically over. He's so depressed, he's drinking and then puking and drinking again. He does not give a shit about anything. Which is exactly what you would expect from his character at this point in time. And the guilt he surely feels about murdering his father and his lover and essentially betraying his brother as well. I know there were a lot of people who weren't fans of Tyrion in prison last season, thought it was a little bit of a slog. I didn't necessarily think that. Of course it's fun to see Tyrion making jokes and wheeling dealing. I mean, his best season was season two, where he got to actually have some power and wield it and have fun with it. And you feel for the guy so much and you hate to see him brought so low, but, but damn if Peter Dinklage doesn't sell the hell out of it. This should be his character hitting rock bottom. It wouldn't make sense to play it any other way. And he does that, and yet... Yes, I hope we move past it quickly so that Tyrion can get back to wisecracking and getting his way out of tricky situations, which is what he does best. And hopefully working with Jorah Mormon. I, I definitely hope they keep that bit. Come on, Jorah! They gotta find you at some point, right? We need you, buddy. Daenerys needs you. Right now, the only advisor Daenerys trusts is Dario Naharis, and he's not the guy she should be listening to. Reopen the fighting pits because Dario says so? Really? This is becoming a a recurring pattern for Daenerys. She says, no, I'm absolutely not going to do this. And then somebody tells her like a sob story. Like, will you take my father down? Yes, he was a master, but he was one of the good masters and you crucified him. And she said, no. And then she said, yeah, okay, I guess you could do it. And then she said, no, slavery is illegal. And then she said, yeah, well, if you want to sell yourself back into slavery, I guess you can. I really, truly love this kind of political intrigue stuff going on in marine and this is another place where i feel like i differ with a lot of fans of this show and of the book series who are very much in the when are we going to get to the fireworks factory mindset we essentially had that promised to us from the beginning that daenerys is going to assemble an army and try to take westeros back and we're like yeah fly in there with your dragons and take over that's what we want to see from the beginning and yet she has been taking her sweet time getting there and if anything, has now completely slowed down and even stopped. First to deal with ruling Marine for a while, and then to try to clean up the mess she initially made of ruling Marine, which is just creating bigger and bigger messes. And it's some of the most well-thought-out material on the show. You can be smart and commanding and charismatic and have good intentions, 
and the love of your people, and I think Daenerys has all these things. It's not enough to be a great ruler. We have to have a lot of clarity of vision and a little bit of luck and a serious pragmatic streak that Daenerys basically lacks. She is a pure idealist. And she also comes off as wishy-washy every time she says, I'm going to stick to my guns, I'm going to fight for what I think is right, and I don't think, you know, slavery is right in any form. Or say, or say the fighting pits are completely reprehensible. But then she changes her mind. It sure seems like Dario changed her mind in that moment. Either allow the fighting pits from the beginning, if you think that's a pragmatic thing to do, I think it certainly would be a pragmatic thing to do. At the very least, give the people some entertainment and distract them from the chaos in Marine. Or stick to your guns and say, that's not who I'm about as a leader, and don't do it, and then find some other solution to keep the people occupied that doesn't involve bloodthirsty violence. In general, I think a good leader is somebody who can listen to her counselors and potentially change their mind. But the fact that she's changing her mind so often and so publicly makes her seem like somebody who can be manipulated. I think Dario sees that. I don't think in the books or the shows Dario is a bad person. I think he genuinely has Daenerys' best interests at heart. And he's not, like, planning on betraying her. I really don't think that, but... He's not a ruler, he's a fighter. And he's going to give the advice that a soldier would give. Why wouldn't you open the fighting pits? I love the fighting pits, I found myself in the fighting pits. Why wouldn't you send me out and let me just, like, slay all of your enemies in Yunkai? Jorah was that key counterbalancing force. Last season, Jorah was able to change Danny's mind again after Dario had previously, uh, you know, sent her on one path. Jorah was like, no, you got to show a little mercy, and Daenerys showed mercy because of that. She is young, and she needs good counsel, and I think she realizes that, but she has lost one of her best counselors, and now she's flailing a little bit. And I'm so curious to see what they do with the, this Marine thing, especially once Tyrion enters the picture. Especially once the dragons are released. That scene with the dragons in this, in this episode was like something out of a horror movie. They always, they always find a way to shoehorn the dragons in some way into episode one of every season. Because, you know, it's always a big part of the promotional material. Yes, this is the show with dragons in it. It's something like no one else on TV can say. It never fails to get people excited. And it's a chance for the visual effects team to kind of show their stuff, to whet your appetite for the big craziness to come. There was a great visual effect early on in this sequence, tearing down the Harpy of Marine. But, it, but man, the way they introduced the dragons here. Last season, it was, you know, the dragons flying around in the sunshine, taking flight, spreading their wings. Daenerys kind of laughing and being a fun dragon mom. Here, they're introduced in darkness and total shadow, and then they light it up with flame, and one of them snaps right at her, and she runs out, and she's breathing hard. It really is like something out of a horror movie. And it's showing these dragons have gone well past cute at this point, and well even past simply being a threatening weapon. These are crazy dangerous monsters that you got locked up. And what the hell is she going to do? You know who else sees an opportunity in Tywin Lannister's death? Status Baratheon. Status Baratheon. Always trying to figure out how he can become King of the Seven Kingdoms, as was his right ever since Ned Stark sent him that letter. He's got to take what's his by hell or high water. Not only because of that letter, but because there's a magical sexy witch who's telling him that he is destined for it. Who wouldn't let that go to their head a little bit, huh? So all this stuff that we see here is almost purely from the books. It's still great to see John and Stannis square off. They're such 
they're both such like strong honorable characters, but they're such different honorable characters. Jon Snow, who's become a pragmatist because he's had to be, who's had to essentially befriend his enemy and realize they're not really his enemy. And Stannis, who just has this unbending iron will, even when his stubbornness isn't necessarily smart. You don't think Stannis could have used Mance Raider to help him, you know, rally the troops to his cause? I'm sure Mance still could have been useful. I'm sure he would have been sympathetic to what Stannis was saying. I'm sure they could have worked together. But Stannis is so like, you better bend the knee, buddy. Not smart, dude. The conversation where Jon and, and Mance try to talk at the end of the episode, a little, maybe a tad on the nose, I think. One of those things where it's just a long argument where everybody's saying exactly what's on their mind. John trying to get Mance to do one thing. Mance trying to say why he doesn't want to do it. Back and forth, back and forth. At some point, yeah, 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 we get it. You probably could have done more with less there. Still, that ending image of uh, Mance getting burned alive, pretty damn powerful. God, that look of fear on Kieran Hinn's face. He's been so stoic and self-possessed so far, such like a clear commanding king. But once you see those flames licking up the pole... Like, he started realizing, oh shit, this is gonna hurt. Played very well, very real, hard to watch. You could see everybody having a hard time watching it, and John puts him out of his misery. Which, in a way, is a big fuck you to Stannis and Melisandre, but he doesn't care. I really like, like, I have become a Jon Snow fan. I don't necessarily love a lot of the material he has to do. I think he, I think the stuff at the wall and beyond the wall can get a little bit bogged down. But I like the kid. The gruffer and more world-weary he is, the more fun he is to watch. He now kind of does have the role of, like, he's the loose cannon in this situation. There's a lot of factions happening at the Wall now, with Stannis and Melisandre and the Night's Watch and the Wildlings and Gilly. And Jon Snow is kind of of all of these worlds and kind of of none of them. And he is the X-Factor. And it's a lot of fun to have a character like that be an X-Factor. So is Mance Raider really dead? There's no rattle shirt in the show. I just, I don't... I don't think they would kill him off. But I'm not sure how they could have a scene like that and have him not really genuinely be dead. Right? Where is the moment where Melisandre could possibly, like, switch somebody else out for Mance Raider and glamour them? And put them up in Mance Raider's place. How would Mance Raider get out of that spot? I don't see how it could have happened, at least the way it was filmed. And so maybe they decided to kill him. Maybe they decided they could continue with this wall story and with Stannis and John and Melisandre's story without him? I would be a little disappointed if that happened. But at the same time, like I said, part of the reason I'm so excited about this season is the deviations from the books. I've... Benioff and Weiss have earned so much trust from me. I'm going to see where they're going with this. But God, I hope Mance is still alive. I just got to put that on record. We had some check-ins. We got to check in with Littlefinger and Sansa. <clears throat> Sorry, Elaine. Elaine Stone. And Robin Aaron, who just seems like he's being tortured by all this fighting business. I guess this is their way of kind of getting Robin out of the eerie action for a good chunk of the season. It's not like Robin is my favorite character, but he still, he is actually Lord of the Vale, right? Even if Littlefinger's acting Lord of the Vale. 
I don't want to imagine that he's just spending episodes just like getting the shit beaten out of him. Because that kid is never going to be a great warrior. Let's be honest. But mostly this was just a check-in to let you know there's still intrigue happening up at the Eerie, and Sansa's gotten a lot smarter. She knows the right questions to ask. She knows Littlefinger's games. She's starting to play the game herself. And it doesn't look like she's going to have to marry Robin anytime soon, so good on that. (laughs) And in another brutal twist of fate, Sansa just rides right past Brienne of Tarth, who at this point has already essentially given up on her mission. Arya just decided she didn't want to go along with her. She's now fighting for a dead woman to bring her children back to safety, which, as the Hound aptly put it last season, does not exist. Now she has no mission, no master that she believes in. All the good lords are dead, and all the ones who are left are monsters. All she's got is Podrick, who she doesn't really want around because he's not especially useful, and he's kind of annoying. I totally get it. Brienne. I know where you're coming from. It's the story of a soldier who just wanted to be a good soldier her whole life, who wanted to use her gifts in the service of good without actually having to determine what was good for herself. And now she's realizing she's got to be a free agent. She's got to make her own choices. Is she going to keep looking for Arya and Sansa? Or is she going to find some other way to do good in the world? She's so She's got such talent and such drive but nothing to do that freedom can be terrifying what can you do to help the world you're in it's not like she could do like a charity walk or a bake sale she's got to find some other way to volunteer and help the world it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens from here that just about does it there's just one more key bit we got to talk about here we got Cersei's confrontation with Lancel Lannister I say confrontation, it wasn't much of a confrontation, but it was definitely a little bit of menace in what Lancel was saying. Even though, ostensibly, his message was, I forgive you. And there was so much more going on than that. It was an accusation, first and foremost. It was a reminder of what he did for her, like killing Robert Baratheon. It was, this is what you made me do. I know about it. God is not happy with my choices or with your choices, and God will make you pay. And implicitly, my people will make you pay. This is one of the big storylines I expect to be preserved in this show. If nothing else, what you can say about Feast for Crows is it's the book where Cersei really came into her own. And you can tell, you know, she's, she sees enemies everywhere already. She's, she's already terrified of the power she's been giving and how she's... The power, she's already terrified of the power she's been given and how she's going to hold on to it. But I think the one thing she doesn't see coming, at least not yet is religious freaks and religious fanatics tearing her down. She's like, what, these kooks? The day Tywin's soul cares were what you think of it, right? It's a threat she doesn't see coming yet, but uh, but you can tell a little bit by Lancel's demeanor. This is a very different person than the guy we saw a few seasons ago. Whatever sort of religious experience he had, this guy means business now. And the sparrows mean business. And I know that the High Sparrow is played by Jonathan Price, and we don't get to see him yet in this episode, but oh man, this could be awesome. And where's Robert Strong? He's still in a, he's still in a room somewhere. When's that guy getting busted out? It could, the playbook is gone, guys. Like, Robert Strong could be resurrected next episode. 
just kicking ass, and I wouldn't be surprised. I won't be. Su- I would practically not be surprised by anything these guys do anymore. I'm so psyched. This was our warm up episode, but quite a warm up. Did a lot to wet my palate. Let's see what comes next. Oh, I am resisting the temptation to download episode two right now. I know I can. Damn you, torrenters! Ugh. But I won't. I'm going to stay strong in the light of the seven. I will not go down that dark path. I will stay on the tried and true holy road of the traditional HBO Sunday night release schedule of Game of Thrones for you guys who do not have BitTorrent. And that does it for my recap this week. Guys, there are more episodes of Accept the Mystery coming. Believe me, it is not done yet. There's even more exciting news that I can't tell you yet. So much is happening. My God. Hear all about it at Radio TFB on Twitter. And stay tuned next week for the next Game of Thrones review. Until next time, Valar Morghulis.